Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. You're welcome to read along if you have an app or a Bible with you. 1 John 4, verses 7, and then all the way to 21. So 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much for for reading, Rolf. Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to Benediction Church. Um, based on the passage that we just heard right out, um, it's not going to be surprising that what we're talking about this morning is the word that was used over and over again, which is love. So now when you think of love, you might think of a host of different things. You might think of uh, a cheesy romantic comedy. You might think of how you love your kids or you love your parents or you love your spouse. And there's a lot of different things that can come to mind with this topic. And our culture also loves to talk about love. Um, love is the subject of a lot of visual art, of plays, of poetry, of literature, of, of movies um, and TV shows and music. And in particular music, there is tons of love songs, just tons of songs where love is, is the main topic or it's in the title and some of them are really cheesy and some of them are kind of good and some of them might be really good. Um, but there's kind of a whole, a whole broad spectrum. I was wondering, to start off this morning, does anyone have, and there's no judgment here of your musical taste, are there any love songs anyone really likes? You can shout them out. There's no right or wrong answer. You don't have to be afraid of judgment. It's okay if you don't have one. But any good love songs anyone likes? Great song. Great song. Night at the Roxbury, 90s, flashback, quality. 
Anyone else? Thanks, Bala. Candle Falling Alive. Great song. <laughs> what was that, Ronnie? Just generally R&B as well. Okay. Great answer. So <laughs> any other thoughts? Those are all, those are all awesome. Okay, those are all great. I, I did some some Googling and was looking at songs starting love. There's songs like Crazy in Love by Beyonce, Endless Love by Lionel Richie that I only know because it's played in Happy Gilmore. Um, I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner, which is in my head all day yesterday. And maybe most relevant to those born in the 90s is As Long As You Love Me by the Backstreet Boys. Um, now, if you're on the younger side of this crowd, if you're like under 20, you may have heard of very few of those songs. But in every generation, there's this raft of songs that are about love because it's this, it's this huge topic. And in honor of Mother's Day, um, I'm going to tell you about one song about love that my mom really doesn't like. Uh, there's a song um, from 1968 by the band called The Doors called Hello, I Love You, but I'm not going to sing it. But the first line is, hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? And I'm not going to do like an in-depth theological examination of the song, but something that's always bugged my mom and that she's told me about many times is that it's an example of how our world uses the word love in a really cheap way right? We don't, you don't love someone you see on the street who you've never met. Um, you know, it's using it in, in a, in a way that isn't the way that, um, that God uses the word love. So one of the things we're going to talk about this morning is the way in how John uses the word love in this passage. We've heard God's love for us. The love that we're commanded to show others is very different from the kind of love that, that the doors were singing about in, in the sixties. So this is the second week, um, of our series, in the book of first John that's called blessed assurance last week, Mike got us started by talking about the first chapter of the book um, and a bit about the circumstances surrounding its writing. So just to recap that, if you, if you weren't here um, first, John is this letter that's written by the apostle John. He's one of Jesus disciples. Um, he's the same John that wrote the gospel of John as well in the new Testament. And, and the apostle was writing this letter in the, the latter half of the first century AD. And it's a time of some turbulence in the church. It's a time where there's leaders who have been spreading false teaching, who have been leaving kind of their, their churches. And in chapter two, John addresses this specifically. And he writes that he's written this letter. He's written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And really in writing this letter, John is seeking to encourage Christians who may have seen leaders and other members of their church um, start to leave and, and go elsewhere. And these are Christians who might be wounded by that loss. They may be questioning what they can really know about God and their faith, um, given what's happened to their churches. And John's seeking to assure them that they can know that they belong to God. They can know that they are saved. And he says this in chapter five. He writes that I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he's written this letter. Um, and that's why we're looking at it today. And last week, Mike took us through a couple of the tests um, that John lays out in the first chapter, one of which relates to our lifestyle. It relates to if we walk in the light like Jesus does, and one of which relates to how we see ourselves, whether we confess our sins and we seek forgiveness, or if we deceive ourselves and we try to say that, that we have no sin. And so today we're going to look at another test that John sets out, this one in chapter four, um, a test for the church, and that is whether we love like Jesus does. And so before we, we jump into our passage in just a minute, I think it's important that we note that, that this book of the Bible and this, uh, this letter and, and this series, if it's, if it's helpful, um, are supposed to be a diagnostic, supposed to be a spiritual check-in for all of us. 
So the goal here isn't to condemn anyone. It's not to say that anyone doesn't measure up to what God's expectations are for us. Um, but rather, really, the point here is to get back to some of the basics of our faith, to the things that God has commanded us to do, and to reflect on whether we're actually doing them. The series gives us a chance to check in with God and check in with ourselves. And if we realize there's some way we're deceiving ourselves or that we're, we're sinning, we should really look back to the words that, that John wrote in the first chapter in verse 9 that Mike talked about last week, where he writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I just want us to have that in the back of our minds as we, as we dig into the passage this morning. So by way of a quick outline, I'm um, going to look at four things today. The first is, what's love got to do with it? The second is, is why love? The third is, how do we do this? And the fourth is, blessed assurance. So starting with, what's love got to do with it? Um, I talked a little bit at the off just about how, you know, our culture has a different perception of love than we do and has a bit of an obsession with with talking about love. Um but I think that really our culture uses the word love to mean so many different things. It's kind of devoid of all meaning. And if you ask Leah, she will tell you that I really am kind of particular sometimes about words and grammar and um, and things like that. And something that drives me crazy is when there's a word that's used so much to mean so many different things that it really comes to mean nothing. And I think that's exactly what's happened to the word love in our culture. And I'm sure many of us, including myself, are guilty of of using the word love in circumstances where it doesn't necessarily apply, like we might say we love a certain food or a car or clothes or the newest piece of technology. Um, but there's a much deeper issue with how our society sees love aside just from kind of the casual use of the word. And really in our world, love has become contractual. It's become about what we get from what we put in. It's become, it's become kind of a transaction. Uh, and there's a Canadian economist you might've heard of named Mark Carney. He was the governor of the Bank of Canada and the governor of the Bank of England. And he wrote this book in 2021 called Values. And in that book, he talks about the fact that we've gone from what he calls a market economy, where kind of the free market rules some of our economy, to a market society, where we've allowed price to dictate the value of everything kind of in our world. And he doesn't talk specifically about love in that book, but he is commenting on how in our society, we measure everything now by what it costs us. And not what's best for us or best for our neighbor or best for our society in general. And this passage in 1 John 4 is actually a passage that Mike preached about, uh, preached on at Leah and my wedding back in 2019. And he referenced in, the, in his sermon um, an article from the Atlantic magazine from 1966 that's called Marriage as a Wretched Institution. And that article is really interesting because it demonstrates that even back in the 60s, there was this view that marriage was kind of a contractual thing, that it was viewed through this prism of determining if love was actually worth it, because in the end, everything is about me and what I get out of loving other people. It's not about anything else. So the author of this, this article was an academic from California. And in the article, he essentially asked why marriage needs to be a lifetime commitment, right? He suggests that you could just sign on for a year or two, see how it goes, and you can have an option to renew the contract if the parties want to. He thought that's the way society should go. We should, we should give that a try and see how it went. Um, to me, it sounds a lot like that's how you renew a lease on a building or some other kind of commercial contract, but not at all how, how marriage should be. But the view of marriage that's reflected in, in that kind of thinking, in that, that article, um, is really in, in terms of what the person writing it would get out of, of loving someone. If after a year, he wasn't going to get out of his marriage what he, what he wanted to, 
he wanted the ability to just say goodbye to his wife. He choose not to renew their contract, love one another, and just go off and try to get love somewhere else. And I want to be really clear from the start that that's not at all the kind of love that John's talking about in this letter. So the very first verse of our passage in verse 7, John writes this. He writes, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So here again, John's talking about the polar opposite kind of love from the one advocated in that article. He's talking about a selfless, self-denying, self-giving love, the kind that's modeled for us by Jesus. And um, this letter of 1 John was originally written in Greek, and the word that he uses for love over and over, he uses it like twice in the first three words in verse 7, uh, is the Greek word agape. And I apologize ahead of time to those of you in the audience who speak any Greek, because I'm going to try to say a few Greek words. Um, but this translation of agape to love like is correct. That's how you translate it. But there's more than one Greek word that we have translated as love. So there's, there's kind of four of them I just want to run through for, for just a moment. So the first is agape, which is used in this passage, and um, we'll talk about it in more detail in a second. The second is eros. Eros, you might have heard before. Um, it's romantic love or intimate love. It's where the English word erotic comes from. Um, the third is philia, which is friendship. It's usually between equals and it describes kind of the loyalty among friends. It's used actually in John's gospel with the story of Lazarus. When, when Lazarus' sisters come to get Jesus and they tell him that the one you love is sick, they use this word philia because Lazarus and Jesus were these, were these good friends. Um, and the last there is, is storge. And again, apologize for terrible pronunciations, but that's a love that's, that's within a family. It's usually you know, described as the love and affection between parents and children. Um, and it's kind of a common or natural empathy or affection. And that's used in the New Testament as well. And in Romans 12, Paul uses that word when he commands Christians to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. He uses a version of storge to say, um, you know, we're to love one another like, like we're family. And while I'm sure you can think of examples of eros and philia and storge in our culture, um, agape is distinct from those other kinds of love. It's actually one of the least common uh, words used in classical Greek literature. It's not something that's, that's kind of out there in, in Greek philosophy very much, but it is used, um, sorry, but when it is used, it denotes the highest and the noblest form of love. But where it is used a lot is in the New Testament, and specifically it's used in John's Gospels um, and in his letters like we're, like we're looking at here. And agape is this word that's used in the New Testament to describe God's love for Jesus and also God's love for the whole world. So agape is the word that's translated as love in John 3.16, which is maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, right? So for God so loved, and there it's agape, the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So agape, the love we're talking about here, is this highest form of love. It's unconditional and it's sacrificial. So going to our, um, back to the text here at, at verses 9 and 10, this is our example of this, this highest example of agape love, is that, is that Christ was sacrificed for us. So this is what John says in verses 9 and 10. He says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in verse 19, John writes that we love because he first loved us. And the key thing to notice here is there's nothing reciprocal in how this love is described. There's nothing transactional about it. There's no, there's no tit for tat. There's no consideration given back and forth. Um, it's not that 
we love God. And because we love God, he did something for us, but it's that God loved us first. And he sent Jesus to be this atoning sacrifice for us, regardless of what we had done, um, regardless of what humanity had done up to that point and what, and what we would do thereafter. Right. It's not that we've done anything to deserve that sacrifice. The key part here of God's agape love um, is this selflessness and this, the sacrificial quality, right? He does this for our benefit regardless of what it cost him and regardless of what he would get back. So that's the kind of love that John's talking about here. So kind of second big point here is why love? Why does love matter so much to John? Why is he going on and on about it in the fourth chapter of the book here? Right. He, he uses, I didn't, I didn't actually count, but he used the word love a lot of times in, in 14 verses. And he gives us the answer to that question right away in verse eight. So in verse eight, he says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. And love is one of the key attributes of God. It's because of that and because love comes from God that those who profess to be God's disciples need to need to love others as well. And in verse 10 and 11, um, John says this. He says, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we, mu- we also must love one another. And jumping down a little bit towards the end of the passage, we find here is, here's the test that's in the verse four. Last time we talked about a couple tests that were in chapter one. Um, so here's, here's this test that's in, that's, in chap- that's in verse 20, rather. He says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And that's really not an ambiguous statement. That's, that's about as clear as as John can make it for us. So if we think we love God and we profess to, but we hate those who are around us, we hate our siblings and our neighbors and our parents, um, we're really only fooling ourselves, right? We're not going to fool God here by, by making it look like we have it all together and making it look like we have great relationships with everyone and we're really loving to everyone. You know, God knows what's in our hearts. And he has this desire for us to, to know the love that he has for us and for us to reflect that love back out to others. And it isn't just John who puts this big emphasis on love. Obviously, these are, these are his words. This is his letter that we're looking at. But we know where he gets this from, right? We know who John is the disciple of. And in Matthew 26, Jesus is asked by a Pharisee, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus answers like this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that's kind of the answer the, the Pharisee was expecting. Um, But then Jesus continues. He says, this is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So this emphasis on loving others, on loving your neighbors, is not just a John thing. It's a Jesus thing. Jesus says this is a really important command for us. It's right behind loving God. So now we know a bit of the what and the why. Um, Let's go into the how of, of showing agape love to others. So it's easy to say, you know, we're commanded to do this, but what's the, what's the, how do we actually do it? What, what, how much put this into practice? So let's go back and look at verses 13 to 16 here. So John writes, this is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and we testify the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And really the key part there is verse 16, that we have come to know and to believe 
the love that God has for us. And we shouldn't let it be lost on us how amazing it is that we have these words from someone, from the Apostle John, who who learned from Jesus, who traveled with him, who ate with him, um, and who who knew him and, and learned from him for years, right? John knew and he believed the love that God had for him. Um, and he knows that has that love for all of us as well. So a big part of the how here is that um, we've experienced God's love ourselves. And so John continues in the, the second part of verse 16 and into verse 18. He says, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. And, and that last part in verse 18 is really important. It's when we have been made complete in love, when we've experienced God's love ourselves, that we're able to love others like Jesus done, like Jesus does, which is what we're, what we're commanded to do. And I think there is this perception in our culture that, that you may have encountered. I know I have, and I, I did this week where God is seen as this, you know, powerful, but mean spirited being who's looking for a way to like rain lightning bolts down on people. Um, or smite people or punish them if they kind of step out of line at all. I was I was somewhere for work this week and there was a Bible just lying on a table um, and someone suggested moving it or touching it after the exact circumstance, but but someone said they didn't dare touch it because they thought if they touched the Bible, they would burst into flames. Um, and I don't think they were serious at all, but, but that kind of joke kind of got me thinking and it reveals a lot about how people um, view God. And I think it, it says a lot about how people in our culture, they view God as vengeful and judgmental somehow um, and just waiting to, to make someone suffer if he has an excuse to, right? And that um, that's just wrong. That's not at all what God is like, right? We know that God is love. Love is one of his most pronounced and important attributes. And John's really clear on that. And um, I really like one of Jesus' kind of go-to parables, a parable that he tells to show God's love. And it's one actually that Lane Fuselet preached about here last summer, and that's the prodigal son. And I'm sure um, many of us know it well, but but just in case you're not familiar with it, it's this parable where a father has two sons um, and the younger son, he wants to kind of get money and go and do his own thing. So he asked the father for the money that he would inherit when the father dies. He says, you know, give me that money now. Let me go off and, and do what I want to do. So the father obliges him. He gives him his cash. And the younger son, we learn, kind of goes off to a distant land and lives the way he wants and blows his money doing things he shouldn't be doing. And lo and behold, at the end of the day, he he blows through his money pretty quickly. And he's he's in dire straits, he's destitute, and and that foreign land's going through a really rough time. So he's he's there, he's living in poverty, and he decides, look, I'm gonna try to go home. And I probably won't be welcomed back because I've rejected my father. I've kind of said to him, you know, I don't care if you're alive or dead, just give me my money. Um, but I'm gonna go back and just ask to be a servant, because at least I won't be starving here in this in this place. So he decides to go back and he he heads back home. And when he's walking to his father's house from a long way off, um, his father sees him and his father runs out and, and we're told he, he throws his arms around his neck and he gives him this big hug and he puts um, this great robe on him. And he says, in these really powerful words, he says, they're going to have this big feast to celebrate his son because his son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is just this awesome picture. Um, this is how, how Rembrandt painted it um, famously, but this is this, this amazing picture of what God's love for us is like. It's, it's this picture of God not seeking to punish us for the wrongs we've committed, but giving us his love and really wanting us to come home. 
And I mentioned the prodigal son in part, because I think that after this experience, the prodigal son, he would have understood the kind of love that John's speaking about here in, in first John four. I think when he was in that distant land um, and he was, and he was destitute and he thought about going back home. Um, I think he would have been afraid of his father. He would have thought, how is he going to react? Um, and he probably would have been afraid of being rejected and punished for the mistakes he made and, and, you know, rejecting his family. But he doesn't get that, right? The son doesn't get punishment. He gets love from his father, and it's this love that drives out fear, right? I think after this whole situation happened and the son had been welcomed back in and they'd had a feast and um, he'd been accepted as his dad's son again, I think he would have understood that there's no fear in love. And I think that would have changed how this how the son would have been able to then go and love others. And at some time or another, we're all really in the shoes of the prodigal son. Right, we've all sinned against God and against others, and at times we all need forgiveness. But the question is, has God's love really sunk into our hearts to the extent that we understand that we don't need to fear? Do we understand that we are enough and that God loves us? Do we understand that we don't have to earn God's love? Do we understand the kind of love that God wants to give us is better than the kind of love the world offers us? And if we understand those things, then we'll be able to offer others the kind of selfless, selfless sacrificial agape love, um, precisely because we have received the same thing from God. And it's when we come to know and to believe the love God has for us, when it sinks in, there's no fear in God's love, that God's love drives out fear. That's when we'll be complete in love and be able to love others in the way that Jesus does. And the other reason that God's love is tied so closely here to the love that we give to others is because we can't do it on our own, right? Agape is not something humans can just achieve on their own um, and get done through sheer power of will and then be proud of themselves for doing it, right? We need God's power in us to accomplish this kind of love. And that's precisely why whether we are loving or not is presented in this passage as a test of our salvation, because right? it's not the case that Christians are commanded to love by God and they're just left to their own devices to do it. What happens when we're disciples of Jesus is that we're transformed to be more like him, we're changed, and one of the key ways we are changed is to become more loving and to love how Jesus does. So let's talk about assurance. You might be sitting here today and, and listening and thinking, okay, Jordan's said a lot about this sacrificial form of love, the selfless kind of love, um, and it sounds kind of hard. It doesn't sound like the easiest thing to do. So how is this supposed to be reassuring? Maybe we should change the name of the series. Um, so first I would say, if you don't already know, you need to know that God loves you and you do not need to fear his love. If you take nothing else away from this morning, please take that away with you um, and, and let it sink in. God isn't this, this way he's portrayed by some people in our culture. He's not this mean kid with a magnifying glass who's looking for ants to burn. Um, he is like the father in the parable of the prodigal son who loves us and he wants to welcome us home with open arms. So even if we think we don't deserve it, even if we think there's no way God could love us, he really does. And second, if you have received God's love and, and that love that, you know, that reflects this, sorry, if you have received God's love and you've reflected that love back out, that, that love that's sacrificial, that's self-giving, if you're showing that to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, um, the first John four, it contains an amazing assurance for you of eternal life. Verse 12 tells us that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. And the second half of verse 16 into verse 17 tells us that God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. 
In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. And in a world where we're often told truth is relative or people can't agree on facts, um, you know, the answers to most hard questions are it depends. It's really good news to have confidence um, of eternal life, of confidence in the day of judgment. It's, it's pretty amazing. And if today you feel like you've never experienced the kind of love we've been talking about uh, and that John wrote about, if you feel like you've never really experienced God's love for you, or if you even fear God, know that that's not at all what God wants for you. God wants you to experience his love. He wants you to have this love that's better than anything the world offers us. Um, this kind of love that, that changes you and deep down it gives you assurance that you belong to him. But what if you're in a season um, where you're a believer and you don't feel like you're experiencing God's love? What if that's you sitting here today? Well, I'd say this assurance is still for you, even if you're going through a rough season or you're not feeling as close to God as you've, as you've felt in the past. But um, I find, at least in my life, that at times when I don't feel as close to God or don't feel um, God's love as, as much as I have in the past, it often has more to do with me than to do with him. It often has more to do with me being busy or prioritizing um, the wrong things in my life or not being cognizant of what God has done for me and he's continuing to do for me. So if you're in that place this morning, I just encourage you to reflect um, and to pray about why that might be the case, but why you feel like you're not um, as close to God or, or feeling as love as you have in the past. So I'm going to mix things up a tiny bit and give you a couple, a few take-home questions now um, and then kind of conclude after that. So few take-home questions to think about, write down, take a picture of them, or um, or they'll be posted this week. So the first is, do the people you love know that you love them? Do the people you love know that you love them? Second is, how do the people you love know that you love them? How do they know? And the third is, if you've experienced God's love before, but you don't right now, or you don't you don't feel like you're, you're feeling it right now, um, what or who do you think has changed? What or who do you think has changed? So to conclude, I just want to do kind of two things quickly. First is I want to leave us with the very last verse of this of this passage, verse verse 21. Um, and then I want to tell you a, a short story about, about the Apostle John. So, so let's just listen together to the last part of this passage of 1 John 4, verse 21. John writes this. He writes, and we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And there's a story about John that's told by the fourth century theologian Jerome. Um, and John is is one of the apostles who, one of the disciples who lives long into his life. He's not martyred um, like his brother and other other disciples are, but he lives for a long time. He ends up kind of in what's now Turkey, um, and he lives into into his late age. And so when he's older and he's frail, he's unable to walk, and his disciples would carry him into the gathering of the believers, into the church every every week on the Lord's day. And every week, these were his words, the same congregation, the same, the same words every time. He would say, little children love one another. And this went on week after week until at last, um, more than a little weary of some of these repeated words, his disciples asked him, Master, why do you always say this? Because, John replied, it is the Lord's command, and if, and if this only is done, it is enough. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. 
We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.